Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Glad you're with us this morning. Hey, Teresa, glad you're with us. Sorry that you're not feeling well. I get you. Uh, stuff's been going around my family as well, and as you can tell in my voice, I still have something. I'm hoping to, uh, to make it through. God was gracious last night. I was able to teach at the New Covenant School of Theology online and uh, didn't uh, cough and snort too much at people. <laughs> and hope I can get through that this morning as well. So we are studying the book of Hebrews, and uh, it's been great. Uh, Teresa there talks about enjoying this study with her husband, Ron, and lots of you have uh, indicated how, uh, how much you've enjoyed this. This is a great book, isn't it? Uh, there's just so much, uh, so much in Hebrews that uh, exalts Christ and, and explains what the plan of God was even from the very beginning, certainly the very beginning of the Old Covenant, and even before that, as we will see. Uh, so today we pick up in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Happy Valentine's, Valentine's Day, Carrie, and to uh, the rest of you as well. Uh, so pick up in verse 5, and it starts off with the word for. For to which of the angels did he ever say? And as I've been telling you, as you should know by now, when you see a word like but, and, because, for, for this reason, therefore, uh, those are all connecting words that tell us something about what is about to be said in relation to what has just been said. So when you see for, you need to go back and say, what, what is he, what's he giving an explanation of? Well, he has just said in verse four that Jesus, the son has become better than the angels. He's inherited a more excellent name than the angels. For to which of the angels did he, God, ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Remember the whole context here is he's moving toward chapters two, chapter two, one, uh, one to three, where he's going to say, you received the words uh, of Moses, I'm I'm paraphrasing. If you've been with us the last few days, you you understand the, the rationale for this. Uh, you received the law, the law of Moses, as uh, delivered by angels. And you know that everything in that law came to pass and God judged those who disobeyed that law. So if that law, that law of Moses that angels delivered, if, if it proved to be relentless in its judgment of those who neglect it, how much more judgment will fall on those who neglect the message of the Son? You see the comparison there? The word given by angels brought swift and and complete judgment for those who neglected its word, their word. How much more those who neglect the word of the Son? So that's where he's going. And again, if you haven't been with us, uh, then you need to go back and watch the, uh, the earlier uh, lessons. So coming back then to chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus has been given a greater name than angels, and now he quotes from Psalm 2 to make his point. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So as I told you yesterday, we're going to look at Psalm 2 and see the whole context here and 
try to understand why he is quoting Psalm 2. And I want to tell you again, yeah, <laughs> Carrie's right. If you see therefore, you need to investigate what it's there for. Yes. What's the therefore there for? That's always the question to ask. Um, whenever you see a New Testament author quoting from the Old Testament, you really do need to take the time to go back and look at that Old Testament quote in its context. You know, in, uh, in my study over the years, I've heard lots of teachers say, and maybe not lots, but some teachers at least say, the New Testament authors just sort of arbitrarily grab verses from the Old Testament and apply it to their need at the time, to their point. That is not true. That is not what's happening. The Old Testament, in its context is always pointing toward Christ. We talked about this yesterday. And when a New Testament author quotes it, he's got the broader message of that section of the Old Testament in mind. And the hearers, especially here in Hebrews, would have known this. So I'm trying to model this for you as well as teach you. He quotes from Psalm 2. You should go back and read all of Psalm 2. You should go back and study Psalm 2 so that you understand how Psalm 2 makes the point he's trying to make. So let's look at it. Here it is. I love this one. This is a messianic psalm. We now know the fulfillment of this is Jesus. And so we learn a lot about Jesus in this. It's a, it's a great psalm. So let's look at it. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? So this psalm opens with this rhetorical question. The nations, uh, the, 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 the Gentiles who are not the Jews right? The, the, these other people groups, they're in an uproar and they're, they're planning something that can't come to fruition. It, it, it can't accomplish anything. Well, what is it? What are they devising? What's, what's this uproar look like? Verse two, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So the kings of the earth are conspiring together and in an uproar, devising a plan against the anointed one. Well, taken at its face value without knowing this points to Christ, who would be the anointed in this context? Well, it would be the king of Israel, right? The one God had anointed as king of his people. So you could have in mind David, uh, possibly a later king, but probably David, right? So the, the, the view here, the image is all these other nations, they are upset with the Lord's choice uh, and, and, and his king, the anointed one. And so they're, they're going to they're gonna attack him and try to take him down. We now know this is pointing to Christ. So the question is, why are these nations uh, rising up against Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, if you don't know this, the word anointed here is a form of the word uh, Meshua, which is the Hebrew word for Messiah. And indeed, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is translated Christu, Christ. So in the Greek, it's uh, they're taking counsel together against the Lord and his Christ. And indeed, Jesus is that Christ. So You've got this vision here of, uh, of the nations 
of the earth plotting against Yahweh and his Messiah, his king. And this is what they're saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to be ruled by the Lord and his Messiah. We don't want this anointed one to be our, uh, our master, our king. We're going to tear off their chains. We're going we're to cast away. We refuse. We are in rebellion against the Lord and his king. It's a very accurate description of the world most of the time. Right? You have all the nations who were hostile against Israel when David was king. And now that Messiah has come, King Jesus, uh, nations don't just simply bow the knee and say, oh good, let's, let's serve King Jesus. So you, you get this, uh, this rebellious uh, view here of them saying they want to cast off the fetters. How does God respond to this? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God says, what is this, some kind of a joke? <laughs> you all think that you can, you can resist me? You think you can just break off my, my chain? Do you think you can throw off my rule? Don't you know who I am? I'm God. This is, this is silly. This is entertaining. He's just, just mocking them, just laughing at them. It's, it's, it's sort of like uh, when my son was very, very young, you know, a toddler, and uh, he would get his, his foam bow and arrow or his, his sword, and he'd come rushing at Mount Dad, and he's going he's gonna to take me down, right? He's convinced he can, he can get me to the ground when he's uh, just a fraction of my size. And, and it was amusing for, him to, for me to watch him think that he could uh, ever take me down. And I might pretend, in fact, I did pretend and let him act, you know, uh, make him think he, uh, he wrestled me to the ground and climb on top of me and, you know, flex his, his arms in the air and say, look, look, I did it. Uh, but of course, it's, it's just cute for a little boy to think he can take out his dad. That's kind of how God is. He's mocking. He's, he's scoffing. Like, this, is, this, is, this is cute that you kings of the nations think that you can take me out. But then he turns from laughter to anger. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Mount Zion, or upon Zion, my holy mountain. At first it's cute, and then the Lord's angry. He says, no, no, no. I've put my king on his throne. He's ruling and reigning over Zion, my holy mountain. And I will not tolerate your rebellion against him. Then in verse 7, it switches to the Messiah, the, the king, the anointed one, telling us about a conversation he had with God. Here's what he says, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So you see this, this interaction. Now the Messiah is saying, the Lord made a decree. Excuse me. The, Yahweh issued this decree. And he said to me, the anointed one, you're not just a king. You're not just the 
Christos, the, the Messiah, you are my son. Today, I've begotten you as my son. I've taken you as my son. Now, those of you who are well-versed in systematic theology probably know some of the, the, uh, the battles that have raged over the years uh, about this concept of God begetting Jesus. And, and you get debates about, is Jesus the eternally begotten son? Or was there a time when he wasn't the begotten son and then he became the begotten son? And of course, those who argue that he's the eternally begotten son have a hard time with this word today. Uh, because it sure sounds like here that today would mean that yesterday he was not the begotten son, right? Well, those are the kinds of questions that are raised when you debate and argue theologically. Instead of reading it in its context, both here in the Psalms and in the broader context of the Bible. This is not intended to provoke the question among us, what is the state of Jesus for all eternity? The point is, God is declaring ahead of time, telling us ahead of time, he is going to give us a son who will be the anointed one and he will rule and reign, which is exactly how it plays out. So we're to read this in the in the storyline of the Bible, not in some abstract uh, theological way. So again, the Messiah now is reflecting on what God said to him. You're my son today. I've begotten you. And then notice this, ask of me, hey, Messiah, hey, anointed one, the one who is my son, ask of me, son, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. I love this. This is fascinating. There's this, there's this dialogue between God, Yahweh, and, and the Son, the anointed one here. And, and Yahweh says, Son, ask of me, and I'll give you the entire globe, the entire earth. I'll give you all of the peoples as your inheritance. It'll be yours. It'll be your possession, the very ends of the earth. Do you remember in chapter 1 of Hebrews, we saw in verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son whom he appointed, what? Heir of all things through whom he also made the world. Do you see the, the background of Psalm 2 in this statement? It's, it's like the father saying to Jesus, ask of me, my son. And this whole planet you see out there, the, all the nations of peoples, they will become your inheritance. They'll be your possession to do with as you please. You can imagine some father today who has a vast estate worth billions of dollars and taking his son out for a ride driving around in a, a four-wheeler or something and saying, look at all this, my son. Just ask of me and I'll give it to you. This will be your inheritance. Going on in Psalms 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron. 
These peoples, these nations that possess the earth or that cover the earth, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You'll be their king. They'll, they'll be your possession. And you can do whatever you want to with them. If they don't obey you, you can rule over them with, with a rod that's made from iron and, and you can crush them. They'll, they'll be like a, a piece of pottery to you. That if they don't do what you want, if they don't fulfill your desires, my son, then you can take this rod and you can, you can smash them into little tiny pieces. You know, sometimes we get this idea that, that the Old Testament is full of judgment and the New Testament is full of grace. And from one perspective, when you, certainly when you compare the covenants, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, that's true. But what we must not do is extrapolate from that that Jesus is not a king who has wrath and indignation toward his enemies. He certainly does. That is testified to in both Testaments. And again, the the fulfillment here of Psalm 2 is Jesus, God's Son. And part of the prediction made of Jesus is you will inherit these nations and if they uh, don't submit to you, you'll crush them. So then the warning comes, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. These kings are in an uproar and they're trying to throw off the shackles of the Lord and his anointed. They're being warned here. Show discernment. Take warning. You who have these roles, these positions of authority and and judging others in the earth, you need to do something with this knowledge. Well, what is it? Worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling. How do you do that? How do the nations of the earth worship Yahweh? It's all here in verse 12. Do homage to the Son. Do you see that? How does the Lord, how does Yahweh want to be worshipped? Do homage to his Son bow down before his son. This is not an abstract glory to God kind of thing. You know, there are all kinds of religions. There are peoples all over the world who say they worship God. If they do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ, they do not worship God. They are the enemy of God unless or until they bow the knee to Jesus. This is the only way to worship God. It's to honor his son, Jesus. It's the only way. Anything else that anyone does thinking they are pleasing God, they are deceived. You cannot get to the Father except through the Son. This is why we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is why we must reject Every other religion. And just because somebody says, I believe in God, I worship God, I serve God, I love God, or whatever, give him thanks. Whatever, those words are meaningless if they do not honor and submit to 
and love the Lord Jesus Christ. He has installed his son as king on Mount Zion. And any nation, any government that does not honor Christ is the Lord's enemy. Do homage to the son, he says, that he may not become angry. Who become angry? Not the Lord Yahweh, but the son, S-O-N, Jesus. Jesus will become angry if you don't bow down to him and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. The son of God has wrath for his enemies. But then it closes on this hopeful note. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Those are the only two options. You are either an enemy of Jesus and you're in danger because his wrath may soon be kindled and he unleash his wrath. Or you can flee to him in refuge. You can, you can ask him for forgiveness and bow the knee to him and you'll be abundantly blessed. So that's Psalm 2. You have this in your mind that those who honor Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah King, will be blessed. And anyone who doesn't honor Jesus is his enemy and subject to his wrath. That means, getting back to our text in Hebrews, this is why this is all heading here. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard about the Son, about Jesus, so that we do not drift away. Why? For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Again, remember what we've said Hebrews is about. There are people who have been converted to Jesus, to the gospel, from Judaism. And now they are tempted to go back to Judaism, thereby rejecting the sufficiency of Christ. And the writer here quotes from Psalm 2 and says, if you do that, you will become the enemy of the Son. And that is a very dangerous place to be because his wrath may soon be kindled and you'll find him destroying you. Hold fast to the sufficiency of Christ. Keep your knee bowed to Christ. Be faithful to Christ. Trust Christ. He will crush your enemies. These people who are persecuting you, these Jews who are persecuting you and burning down your houses and throwing you in prison, Jesus is not blind to that. They are under his rule. When he's ready, he will protect you, rescue you, and he will judge them. So hold fast to the Messiah. Oh, how much application there is for us today, wherever, we, wherever you live in the world. Is persecution being turned up here in the West? Maybe. It's certainly happening in other parts of the world. We hold fast to Jesus. Don't give up Christ for anything else. Because no matter how bad it gets with the wrath of man, it's nothing compared to the wrath of the Son. But if we flee to him and take refuge in him and hold fast to him, then his enemies become our enemies. 
and that's the safest place to be. I hope you're seeing why, uh, why he quotes from Psalm 2 here and his comparison. Let me take a look at your comments real quick, and then we will call it a day. Rick Peterson says, thank you, Doug. What I'm hearing is the whole counsel of God, the kindness and severity of God, Acts 20, 27, and Romans 11, 23. Exactly. The whole counsel of God there in Acts means the whole plan, all centered on Christ and his reign and rule. Very good. And Carrie uh, says, how blessed indeed we can flee to Christ. And we must and never give it up for a second. All right. So again, reflect on this. Think about why this is, we went through this to get back to, to, to see why the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 2. It fits his purpose. It fits his context. And he's not just grabbing arbitrary verses, but if you understand the, the point of Psalm 2, then you see why this issues a very strong warning to his audience that is tempted to walk away from Christ for, the, for Judaism. Uh, Luke says, the fear of the culture is making strong men out of some leaders like in Moscow. Uh, is making strong men out of some leaders. Oh, I see. Yeah. And like everyone else, they need to fear Christ or else they'll find themselves not so strong after all. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day. Lord willing, we'll see you back here tomorrow and continue our study of Hebrews.